Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. All right, it's a pleasure to welcome all of you to our webinar today. My name is Margot Landman. I'm Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And with us today from outside of Seattle is Dory Jones Young, who has written When the Red Gates Opened, a memoir of China's reawakening. Before we get to that, however, I would like to thank my colleagues who are working behind the scenes to make sure everything goes well. And to remind everybody that if you have a question, and we hope that you will have questions, please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen and submit your question, including your name and your affiliation, if you wish not required. All of you have Dory's bio. Um, you know that she was an early China reporter, although not based in China, but I won't give it all away, um, and has been writing about China and US-China matters since her return to the US in 1990. Um, she will give us a, an introduction to her book and her story, and then she and I will have a brief conversation, and then we'll open it up to questions. So, Dory, thank you very much for being with us, and it's all yours. Well, great. Uh, great. Thank you, Margo. Thank you very much. I just want to say I'm really honored to be here at the National Committee, uh, virtually anyway. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to, uh, to tell you about the, the new book that just came out yesterday. So I know that most of you haven't had a chance to read it and aren't familiar with it. And probably quite a few of you aren't necessarily familiar with me. So I wanted to talk a little bit about who I am and um, how I came to write this book. And then uh, I'm really eager to get to the interactive part um, as soon as we can. But I just uh, wanted to explain to you a little bit sort of about, about who I am and uh, what made me write this book. Um, the, uh, the title is When the Red Gates Opened, a memoir of China's reawakening. Um, it's my personal memoir. So it's both a personal and a historical memoir. So this is a little bit different than perhaps some of the other uh, things that you've read. Um, it's my personal story of being a young foreign correspondent for Business Week. Uh, based in Hong Kong covering China during that very pivotal decade of the 80s and um, uh, falling in love with the Chinese man, getting married, having a baby, but also dealing with being a young correspondent on my own. And um, I open up a lot about personal insecurities and setbacks. 
And, but it's also the story, the history of a very pivotal time in history, um, which the 80s, I believe, were a pivotal time for China, for, for communism, and for the world, because that was the time when, as many of you know, obviously, the, China went from isolation to openness. And a friend of mine describes historical fiction as a microcosm of one person's history in a macrocosm of a larger history. And this is not fiction, it's memoir, but um, that's what I'm hoping that it will be. So this is not a scholarly work. I know many of you um, are scholars. Um, what this is, is really uh, for your family and friends, for people who are Americans, who are a little bit interested in China, but not, uh, not particularly China experts and might never sit down and read a whole book about China. But the, the vehicle of my story, my personal story, can get them involved and interested in the book. And then they end up learning a lot about China as they read. So um, the book begins in Tiananmen Square. That was actually toward the end of my time as a reporter covering China in, uh, it was in, uh, in starting in May of 89 when the, uh, the protests were at their peak. Uh, that was the biggest story I ever covered as a journalist. And um, <clears throat> it, was, it was actually a very joyful time. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. I was there on the square covering China. Um, but then the book goes back to the beginning of my involvement in, in China, which was really the beginning of, uh, in a sense, of the US uh, involvement with uh, anew with China when uh, Carter and Deng Xiaoping established, reestablished diplomatic relations between the PRC and China. In, um, and when he came, when Deng Xiaoping came to the US in January of 1979, I'm sure many of you remember this, although others perhaps not. Um, I was a grad student in DC at the time, and I was able to go because of my job at the National Council for US-China Trade, I was able to sit in the back row and watch uh, the Kennedy Center uh, welcoming of him. And it was really a moment ripe with hope after a long period of, of antagonism between the two countries. Um, my background, how I got there and how I got into this particular job, um, I had prepared for a career in journalism. My dad was actually a, an independent bookseller in, uh, in Ohio, and he encouraged me to go into journalism. And I started with my hometown newspaper, the Youngstown Vindicator, and worked uh, there uh, summers in college when I was at Princeton and spent most of my waking hours in college on the offices of the Daily Princetonian, training for journal a career in journalism. But I also had a background in China, which came a little bit later. Um, right after college, I spent two years in Singapore um, teaching English and then studying Mandarin Chinese intensively for four hours a day, five days a week, which later I discovered is really the best way to, to study Chinese because it's such a difficult language for most Americans to learn. And I uh, then got very interested in China because I was interested in the language. I, I fell in love with the language first and then realized I didn't know very much about China. So I went to graduate school in international affairs, studying particularly about China at Johns Hopkins SAIS. 
And then right at that moment, Deng Xiaoping came and it became possible for these two strands in my life, the uh, journalism and China, to come together. So I was very lucky in a way. I was at the, in the right place at the right time with the right experience. A lot of newspapers and magazines were looking for correspondents uh, who knew something about China at least and uh, had background in journalism. And I was hired by Business Week, trained up in New York for a year and a half. And then they sent me to Hong Kong to be the bureau chief. Turns out it was a one person bureau. So I was 12 time zones away from my bosses and um, had to kind of learn the ropes uh, by myself. Uh, didn't have any mentors or colleagues there to help me out. And uh, China was also a very, at a very interesting uh, place very different from today. It was, it had, uh, Deng Xiaoping had just started the economic reforms. They were very, very young and, and tentative at that time. There were a lot of uh, signs of the old China, uh, Mao statues and uh, banners on the street, although they weren't as overtly political as they had been. Uh, people on bicycles commuting to work and hardly any traffic. It's, it doesn't look at all like China today. And, uh, but at the same time that a lot of these signs of the old China were there, a new China was emerging. And this was with uh, allowing more private enterprise and more freedom of decision. So farmers especially were in the beginning, it was more focused on agriculture. They had a chance to decide what they wanted to plant and then sell their produce uh, on their own in farmer's markets, which at the time was, uh, was kind of a breakthrough because they were they were able to go into business effectively, going into business for themselves, which had never been possible under the communists before that. And uh, the other huge story at the time when I first got to Hong Kong was fear about the future for Hong Kong because just a few months after I got there, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher went to Beijing to begin talks about Hong Kong's future after 1997 with Deng Xiaoping and the other leaders. And that set off a panic in Hong Kong, as you can imagine. Um, in, my, in my career, I've seen a couple of different stages of panic in Hong Kong. Another one after the Tiananmen crackdown, and then really another one today, I think. So it's a, kind of a recurring theme in history. Um, my very first cover story for Business Week was about the future of Hong Kong, um, looking really at Hong Kong Shanghai Bank and Bank of China and their rivalry uh, over the future of Hong Kong. Uh, shortly after, about a year after I got there, I met a good looking Chinese guy named Paul Yang. And um, we started seeing each other and then we're married a few years later. So a lot of the personal part of the story is about meeting him. Um, I, just a month after I met him on an airplane, by the way, um, I, uh, he took me to Taiwan to meet his parents and, uh, and who don't speak English at all. And it was all in Chinese. Um, Paul was born in mainland China and his father was with the Chiang Kai-shek government. So in 1949, the family had to flee to Taiwan, a very familiar story. Many, many families have this story. So Paul went to, lived in Taiwan during high school and college. And then he moved to the US. And by the time I met him, he had been a US citizen for, for many, many years. But his parents still lived in Taiwan. So um, when I met them, um, 
it just felt magical to be sort of inside a Chinese family communicating in Chinese and getting their perspectives on, on China and on Taiwan. Um, and during the 80s, another really exciting thing was the chance for people like Paul to go back to China and find their relatives. So for 30 years, they had not been able to communicate with their relatives they didn't, who were left behind in China. They didn't know if they were alive or dead. Uh, for me, that was very hard to fathom, not, not even knowing uh, what, what happened to all of your relatives. So he, when he got back, he started looking up these various aunts and uncles and, and, later, and cousins that had been born after he left and getting to know them. And uh, the picture on the left is a very small village in um, Hubei province where his mother came from. So I got a chance to go to a place where no other foreigners had been uh, deep in the countryside and get really a very different view of China than I was getting generally as a business journalist. And the pictures on the right are where his father's family came from, Lian Yunggang. It's a um, small, small to mid-sized city on the coast of China, halfway between Beijing and Shanghai. And he had an older sister, a half sister, who had been left behind in China. And she'd had a very, very bitter life, as you can imagine. Um, and getting to know her and about her children who were taken from her and had to go uh, down to the countryside and she was left alone. And the, the familiar stories that you read about in literature really came to life because I, I was hearing them from Paul's sister and uh, getting to know her and her family. This was another a second cover story that I did called Capitalism China, Capitalism in China in 1985. And it really uh, symbolizes the the feel of the 1980s, which were a time of hope and optimism and uh, even euphoria. Um, a lot of US businesses were very excited about the possibility of doing business in China, although it was very, very difficult as I found when I actually talked to them. But there were, people were able to buy more colorful, interesting clothing People could go into business for themselves and just make decisions. If they wanted to quit their job and start up a company, they could do that. And suddenly there was a lot more personal freedom in China. Uh, but by contrast, being a reporter in China um, in the 80s in particular, um, we foreign reporters were not allowed to just wander around and pick up the phone and call people and make appointments for interviews and, and talk to people. Um, it was very, very hard to, to do that because you had, the rule was you had to have a Chinese minder. And that basically means a communist party minder. Um, and for in the several, first several trips I took uh, with the, it was the All China Journalists Association at the time. Um, my minder was this woman, Tian Bin, and she's about my age. And uh, we kind of worked out a, a rapport and a detente and <clears throat> figured out a way to get along, even though she was in every single meeting and taking notes. And I know she was writing reports about me, but I, I found a way. Fortunately, I was writing about business. I wasn't writing about uh, dissidents or uh, 
terribly, uh, I wasn't writing about very sensitive topics. Everybody wanted to talk about business. So it was, it was relatively easy for me to do the reporting that I did. Um, one, somebody asked me the other day who, what was my favorite interview in China and the favorite person I interviewed. And I would have to say it was Mr. Stock Market. Some of you know who this man is, Professor Li Ning. And he was, it, it was just mind boggling for me when China started a stock market, because there is just nothing more capitalistic than a stock market where the means of production uh, are, the, are being sold in shares to individuals. And he's, he's a lively, delightful person. So toward the end of my time there in May of 89, when the protests broke out, I was taken aback as most people were. Um, certainly the government of China was taken aback when the students demonstrated and started the, um, started the protests that went on for six weeks. I think a lot of us don't remember that or don't realize that. And many of the reporters I've talked to who also covered Tiananmen Square had a similar experience that I did, which was that it was a time of unbelievable openness. And there was a, a freedom to talk to people. Early in the 80s, people were a little afraid to talk to me. Certainly they didn't talk about sensitive subjects. And in May of 89, everything was on the table. People talked about the leadership, what they were happy with, what they were unhappy with, with total strangers. So there was this amazing sense of trust as well. And that part, I think, uh, gets lost uh, when we talk about Tiananmen today, because what we remember is the bloody crackdown. So in June of 89, um, the, all that euphoria turned to despair. And um, I wrote about that too. I was, was in Beijing and that was um, another story I wrote about. And I was absolutely convinced as were most observers, I have to say, that the reforms were over. All this excitement about Deng's economic reform and fast growth and uh, private enterprise and stock markets, it was all dead in the water nothing was going to ever, it was, they were going to go back to the old ways and that was it for China. They were going back into the dark ages. And um, a lot of us believed that in 1989, 1990. So in 1990, I left China and came back to the U.S. and settled um, in, in the Seattle area. And that's where I've been living ever since. And I've been following China really from a distance. Um, uh, not as a not as a reporter anymore. My husband took up uh, the China trade again when uh, Deng Xiaoping restarted his reforms in 1992, and um, he my husband continued in the China trade and traveled all over and was able to kind of ride the wave again. Uh, but I uh, did not go back to reporting. And just a couple of conclusions and themes. Um, Journalist predictions are often wrong. I mean, I think that's not news to most of you, but it's very humbling to anybody who's ever been a journalist because there's written evidence of your lack of foresight. I had one sentence in a story from now on, it seemed China would be moving backward. This was in 1989. Well, China did move backward for a while, but uh, the way China moved forward starting in 92 was just beyond anybody's ability to imagine. Um, even in my most euphoric stories in the 80s, uh, we've said, oh, maybe China would catch up in some technologies by 2050. Uh, 
there's a lot that's happened since then that none of us predicted. And also another thing I learned is that China looks really different from the inside. Many of you already know that. But it, as a journalist, it's really hard to convey the full nuance and complexity of what you can see. Uh, what you see as a person when you're, you're covering China, there's a sense in the US among certain people that China is a monolith. China is this, China says that, China does this, and China being the Chinese government, but there's 1.4 billion individuals behind that. They're very different. They, a lot of them have different opinions and you don't get a sense of that until you really get inside China. I think many of you have had that experience as well. And of course, no problem of worldwide concern can be solved unless Washington and Beijing find a way to work together. That's um, something I think that we need to remember today. And I, I tried to end the book on hope. I, I finished the last little bits of the book this summer and it was pretty hard to find any hope. 73% uh, of Americans have a negative opinion of China. And um, most of what you read about China in the newspapers uh, is, is very negative. And of course, the US government is very negative on China right now. Uh, so the, the, the hope that I got came from this sentence in uh, John Pomfret's wonderful book. Uh, he says, both sides experience rapture, both sides meaning the US and China over the centuries, both sides experience rapturous enchantment, begetting hope, followed by disappointment, repulsion, and disgust, only to return to fascination once again. Well, we're in the disappointment, repulsion, and disgust phase. Um, and um, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll return to the fascination at some point. And that's, that's the most hope that I can give you at this point. And just that uh, some of us are wrong when we predict what we think is going to happen in US-China relations. And sometimes it's worse, but sometimes it's better. So the, those are a, a little bit, that was a little bit of kind of an explanation of what the book's about. And so I'm really looking forward to um, Margo's questions and your questions. I hope that you're writing them in the question box right now. Thank Margo? you so much, Dory. That was a wonderful introduction and overview. What comes through both in the book and in your remarks just now is your very refreshing humility. <laughs> you are willing to say, I got it wrong. That, that's, because, that's because I'm a former journalist. <laughs> I think if I were still a journalist, I might not be willing to admit that. But the problem is you can read it. I mean, I was, I, I was just, I, I, I won't name names, but you know, when you read what people wrote in the early 90s, they were all, a lot of people were predicting, a lot of American journalists were predicting the downfall of the Chinese communist government. And that didn't happen. So unfortunately, whether we're humble or not, there's a written record of what we said. That's true. One of the things you said in your remarks was that your book, you wrote it for Americans. Do you think that it might be translated? Because I would suppose that there would be a lot of Chinese who might also find it a very interesting look back at their history. They might. I do. I, I'm also humble about that because the Chinese uh, uh, lived their history and they lived it with, from a very different perspective. And so mine is very much an American perspective. Um, 
So there might be, the other thing is it does begin and end with Tiananmen Square. I'm pretty sure it will never be sold in mainland China, uh, or at least not in the foreseeable future. But I'd be delighted if it were translated into Chinese. One of the things that struck me about your pictures was the color of the sky. <laughs> Very polluted even back then. Well, um, you were in China even before I was, and I think uh, you, you probably remember that they used charcoal uh, fires to cook with and to heat. And all over Beijing, they had these little tiny charcoal fires, and that's what made the air so terrible in those days, especially in the winter um, when, the, when people really needed the fires for heat. So there was a different reason. And there was no, um, the US Embassy wasn't keeping track of the air quality in those days. But I think if they had, it would be really interesting to see what the air quality was then versus say 2007, 2008, 2009, when, when it started getting really bad again. In January, 1982, you report that the, you and the top editor at Business Week agreed that China was the best story out there. But you also wondered how China, and I'm quoting you, could ever manufacture stuff good enough to export because the Chinese had forgotten how to work hard during the period of high socialism. How do you reconcile those two sentiments if China was such a basket case, why was it such a good story? Well, we were a business magazine. And so um, from the American business point of view, um, it, was a great, uh, it, was, it was a great opportunity. And I think it's interesting to look back and realize that um, the American business was interested in selling to China. And they saw it as a huge market, even though um, 80, 90% of the people in China were on the farm and under the poverty level at that point. The US companies just saw a, a tremendous demand for their goods. And um, as far as the exports, I don't think at that point, American companies were thinking of it as a place for them to manufacture and for export. In fact, it was really the Hong Kong entrepreneurs who figured that one out. Um, they just started going across the border and setting up these little factories. It wasn't part of the five-year plan. They just did it. And um, they, I didn't think that that, I thought that they, the Chinese had lost their work ethic because of course there was no incentive to work hard when you get the same, in the old way, when you got the same wages no matter how hard you worked. But the, the uh, little Hong Kong manufacturers going across the border pay them uh, on the basis of production. And the more they produced, the more they got paid. And there was an incentive for them to work hard. And they did not hire people who had experience in the state-owned industries. They hired um, young men and women straight off the farm who had never worked in a factory on their life. So they, and they trained them up. So it was a whole different set of people that uh, worked in those factories. So that, that was one of the things I learned while I was there. Yeah. In one of your early visits to the PRC, 
you comment that the Chinese, and again, I'm quoting, did not seem oppressed, looking over their shoulders, worried about censorship or government control. Some have said that since reform and opening began more than 40 years ago, the Chinese people have been the most free in the history of the country. Do you think that that still pertains today? <laughs> well, <clears throat> they certainly were more and more free uh, in the 80s, at starting when I first went there. And, and I was aware when I wrote that, that it, it didn't seem that way. Um, there were certainly things that they didn't talk to me about. They knew what to talk about and what not to talk about at the time as well. But they, they seemed a lot freer. And then as time went on in the 80s, they just, uh, they just got more and more free in, in talking to foreigners, especially foreign journalists who were considered spies. And of course, uh, in the decades since then, they got even more free and were able to to go to the U.S. and study or, or other countries and study and go back. And um, there was just an amazing amount of freedom. It, it does seem that in the last uh, five or eight years, there's, uh, there's somewhat less freedom than there was before. People have to be more cautious and there are certainly topics they can't uh, find information on in the internet. So it's going in the other direction but I think it's still far, far freer than it was uh, back in the 80s. And one thing I, I noted is that in terms of uh, the most number of people, the most common people in their most common daily lives, they have quite a bit of freedom and they're much better off than they were, certainly than their parents were back in the 80s. And um, so, I think that there's, there is still, in terms of the 5,000 years of history or 3,000 years of history, they're, they're certainly a lot freer than they have been. And I also think there's a lot freer than they appear to be. Um, my husband is on WeChat all the time and he, uh, he gets quite a range of opinions from friends across China on certain topics. And there are other topics they won't talk about, of course. We have a question from Susan Blumberg Kaysen, who writes, thank you for this great presentation. I think your book is for people who know China. You write about a time that is not often addressed in China books from the last decade or two. Those are set more in the 90s and after. So were there books that inspired you as you were writing yours? Well, I, that, thank you, Susan. That, that's, that's a really good question. One thing about the 80s is that the very, very first um, journalists that, that went, in, you, American journalists that went into China, um, Fox Butterfield, uh, Jay and Linda Matthews, wrote books about what they saw in like 78, 79, 80, the really, really early days when you were there, Margot. And then uh, there wasn't a lot written about uh, scholars wrote about the 80s, but there wasn't a lot written for the popular press of, uh, about the 80s. And then there were a lot of books, instant books, about the Tiananmen Square crisis. So this, I think she's right, this period of time is, uh, is a period that really hasn't been written about a lot. And, um, and particularly from the business angle, which is the angle that I saw 
there was a question at the end of it, which I've forgotten. What was that? <laughs> or was what there? What books influenced you as you? Oh, well, of course, I was reading uh, uh, Alive in the Bitter Sea and, uh, and Jay Matthews' book, Linda Matthews. Uh, those books at the time were, were very pivotal in terms of what understanding that we could have about very, very early post-Mao China. But at the time, when you're a journalist, you have to just cover what you see. You often don't have books to, to guide you by. They're usually written some years later. I think she meant as you were writing now. Oh, as I'm writing now. Writing this book, was there anything that was helpful, inspiring? I hope I'm not putting incorrect words in your mouth. There weren't so much about the 80s. Um, I, I mostly relied on my own notes, but um, in terms of recent books, the one that I find most inspiring is Superpower Showdown by um, Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei, which I, um, was a big eye-opener for me because US, China, U.S. business was the biggest cheerleader for China. We all know that in the, in the 90s and, and going into the WTO and beyond. And then their opinions shifted 180 degrees in the last few years. And I remember kind of waking up one day and saying, wait, 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 what happened to all the, the pro-China pro business people? And in that book, they really described very, very well the changes in attitude in not just the US administration, but in, in US business and also what was going on to, to the extent that we can know inside the Chinese leadership that explains that shift. And that's the one that, that helps me the most of the ones that I've read. We have a question from somebody who's also writing about his experience in China in the early days. This oh. is from Tom Gold, professor at UC Berkeley. Yes. Uh -huh. He says, I'm writing a memoir of my year as the first American student at Fudan in 1979-80, and would like you to discuss how you organized the book, chronological, thematic, episodic, well, I, uh, I am a journalist, so I'm a little, I, I definitely did it chronologically. Um, and uh, what, what my biggest uh, challenge as a writer was balancing the specifics of what was happening to me with the larger picture of what was happening in China. And I think in terms of making a memoir interesting to people beyond your friends and family, you need to have that larger picture, which, I mean, obviously, if with his years of scholarship, he has a perspective on what was happening that he didn't know then. And to bring in that uh, mature perspective onto your life, and also the mature perspective on what was going on in China, but also what was going on with you. I mean, I really had to do a lot of reflection, like, what was I thinking? <laughs> why, why did I do that? And um, really good memoir has a lot of personal reflection in it. So I'd love to read that book. Can't wait to pass out. <laughs> Tom, hear that? <laughs> we have another old timers question, if I may characterize it that way, from Cecil Stewart. My first travel to China was in 1979, and I have made 40 subsequent trips, professionally and teaching architecture. 
From these experiences, I have a theory. Quote, yeah. communism was a convenient language rather than policies for Mao to play upon the historic conditions of dynastic governance and cultural communal relationships. Agree or disagree? <laughs> Sounds like a professor's question. And discuss, right? <laughs> um, well, Mao certainly uh, didn't practice communism the way Marx or that Marx was thinking. Uh, there was certainly a lot of Leninism and Stalinism, I guess, uh, in in his in his approach. But he he redefined it, uh, as as you know. Uh, Totally. And, um, but he redefined it in ways that I don't think Chinese history can really explain very well, which is things about class struggle and the, the kinds of, of chaotic uh, personal uh, persecutions that he took, that took place there. Maybe a, a, a real scholar of China could, could put that in perspective. But I think that it, it's not, what he did was not in the, not really consistent with either communism in other countries or really with a lot of uh, what, what Chinese uh, history would have predicted, although they certainly had some mercurial emperors who did, who did some crazy things, maybe in that sense it was. But I think that uh, Deng was a, was, a major, was a major break. And um, he certainly, uh, we used to laugh about the term, Deng's term, socialism with Chinese characteristics Back in the 80s, we said, oh, that's just capitalism, right? But uh, one thing I realized in looking back is that it was, it was balancing out uh, socialism, sort of, uh, they still had uh, landowner, common like, government owned all the land, and there's still aspects of socialism, but they were, they were adapting it to, to China, and it really, it was a little bit of both. And... Uh, what Dunn did was also unique, uh, but in a more, more productive, positive way. I hope that answers the question. We have a question about your, your experience as opposed to Chinese development from Juliet Cutler. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about what it meant to be a woman living abroad and working, quote, in a man's world at this time when feminism was really coming of age? Well, that is a that. Thank you for that question, Juliet. It was it was a. It's kind of a theme in this book. I wasn't one of the early feminist pioneers. I think that anyone who came of age in the '70s certainly would get that uh, get that crown. Uh, but I came just very shortly afterwards. And um, in in magazine journalism, for instance, uh, up until just a few years before I joined Business Week, women were not allowed to be writers. They could be reporters, but they weren't allowed to write. And, and this was at Newsweek, and um, they, there was a lawsuit uh, against uh, Newsweek at the time. And so there was there was a lot after that. There was a lot of pressure on uh, Newsweeklies, uh, including Business Week, to hire more women. And I was also very aware of being a, a pioneer woman in a lot of ways. Like I was, I was actually the youngest foreign correspondent, but I was also the first foreign correspondent to have a baby overseas. And they certainly at, at McGraw-Hill Business Week did not have a policy that that took into account being overseas because we all relied on um, 
on housing allowances since the, it was so much so very expensive to live in Hong Kong. So there were there were a lot of times when I was very very conscious of the women coming up after me. I hired uh, three different women in the course of time that I was working there, and I wanted to make sure that I set a good precedent for them, um, which probably was kind of compromising things a little for myself. But I wanted to make sure that they had they had that I didn't blow it for them, that they had the same opportunities that the best opportunities they could. We have a question from an anonymous attendee. As you are no longer in China, how do you keep up with what is happening on the mainland? It seems increasingly difficult to get information about China in recent years. That's a great question and it's, it's one of my biggest frustrations and I think that's probably true for many people on the call. Um, my husband and I had planned a very long trip to China in April um, and also to including Hong Kong. We were planning to go back to Hong Kong and Beijing, Shanghai and go to a couple of, uh, we always go to, we wanted to go to Luoyang and some other places that we hadn't, that I hadn't been to before. And um, we couldn't do it, obviously. So without those, but so without the personal experience, um, recent experience, it gets harder as the time goes on, it gets harder and harder for those of us who are in the US to really say with any certainty what, what's going on. Not that we're ever completely certain, but at least when you go there, you can talk to people and you can get their perspective. And there's WeChat, <laughs> but beyond that, uh, it's, it's very hard. And I, I'd love to hear what some of the scholars have to say about that. And also some of the, some of the Chinese, um, in the audience who, who are here and, and uh, they can probably keep in touch with their families by WeChat, but it's, it's probably hard for them to really know what's going on there as well. And I, I think that's one of the problems in the US-China relationship right now is that we've lost the people-to-people -people connection. A lot of the, um, the Chinese who were abroad, particularly the students, have gone home. There's no more tourism in either direction. So we don't have either on the Chinese side or on the American side, we don't have those personal interactions. And I think that's one of the greatest losses because whatever's going on with our governments, um, if we have the personal, personal, person to person connections, we can keep things going at some level, at least in terms of understanding. And I really think it's important. One of the themes of my book is to encourage an understanding and appreciation of China among American readers, among even the 73% who are um, feeling pretty negative about China right now, just to understand it in some depth. It doesn't mean the bad things are not happening and the, or that the bad things are not bad, but just to understand it in some perspective of, of history and of, of the Chinese culture. And we're not getting that. I'm surprised that you didn't mention the mutual restrictions slash expulsions of journalists recently, because well, obviously that limits Americans' ability to know what's going on and to have a context. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's just devastating. I mean, if it's, it's hard enough being a journal, an American journalist in China, covering China, um, and trying to explain China in the, the limited number of words that you have. I was talking about nuances and complexities. 
if you're writing a, a newspaper article that's this long, there's only so much you can say. So it's hard enough when you're there and you're, you have access and you're talking to people to get, to get the, uh, to, to write a good article and really get across those nuances. But if you're, if you're kicked out of the country, nope, we can't do it. And uh, I think that's a, that's a terrible loss to, to the, to the American news media and all of us readers that we don't have the benefit of those people who were some of them really digging up some, some great information and finding, finding things that we could never have imagined that they could, could find. We have a question from Julene Kaleas. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Thanks for sharing your story. It's interesting to listen to your narrative because you were there early on and really integrated yourself into the language and culture. I am curious to know which China-related issues you closely follow now from afar and deem most important for Americans. Also, are you still close with your husband's family? Have their views changed towards America? Um, we are still very close to his family. Um, we Not as close as we were, of course, uh, before COVID really cut everybody off. We had several of his cousins that were here in the US kind of stuck and we ended up spending quite a bit of time with them. They did this summer manage to get back. What was the earlier part? I was what should we be focusing on? Oh, or what do I focus on or what should we, what, um, it's interesting what I focus on and what others focus on. Um, this really kind of came home to me about um, a little over a year ago. Um, I came to New York for the Overseas Press Club had a, a, an event um, regarding Tiananmen Square, right? because that was a big anniversary last, uh, last June, and, or a year ago, June. And um, I realized that I, I had a bit, a bit of a different perspective than some of the other reporters. And I think it's because of the nature of, of what I covered that I was thinking more about, about business and the business angles and aspects of it rather than uh, diplomacy or politics or scholarship. And that does give a little bit of a different lens. And I'm, I realized that in talking to some of the others. So I, I read the Wall Street Journal and I, I want to know what's going on in business. And those are, those are I read other things as well, but I, uh, I really focus a lot on, on, on TikTok and WeChat and, uh, and um, Huawei and, and all of these uh, business stories, I, partly because my husband's in business and partly because that's what I covered. But secondly, I think I had a, a historic perspective, and I think many of you do as well, um, to really understand uh, where China is coming from and being able to kind of put things in perspective. Uh, we've seen these, these big swings back and forth. And so I bring those two perspectives and it's not what I think you should be interested in. It's more sort of the, the angle of vision that I have, which tends to look more at business and, and, and to try to get a, a, a deeper perspective and also to tr really try to understand how things look from the Chinese point of view. And when you look at US-China relations, military relations, trade relations, um, it's hard to completely understand the Chinese point of view, but if you try to understand it, it's, you really get kind of a different perspective on some of those issues. 
We have a question from your old friend, Bill Armbruster, Great. who says, why did you choose this title for your book? So, hi, Bill. It's good to see you. Uh, he and I both worked at the National Council for U.S.-China Trade, worked, writing for the China Business Review uh, long, long ago. And um, so the, the particular title, When the Red Gates Opened, um, I wanted to get a sense of that particular period of history um, without putting the word 1980s in the title, which sounds very dated. But it really, and, and to get across the sense that this was a pivotal moment of history, it was when they did open up and they're a lot more open certainly today than they were before the 1980s and, um, and that it's a memoir. I originally I had it as a subtitle, a memoir of China in the 80s. And I was told, no, 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 That's, that really sounds dated. So <laughs> we changed that to China's reawakening, which, which I like a lot better. But it was hard to pick a title because there's the personal story and then there's the bigger story. And I wanted to, to get a sense of both and it, it's hard to do that. I love the cover though, because it, that, uh, when you think of gates, you think of those big heavy gates with those brass knockers you know, that, that you see. And um, this one is, is, a, is a red gate, but it's a much more delicate, kind of almost like a scholar's type uh, gate and kind of inviting you in rather than keeping you out, which I, I think is a, is a good way to look at, at least in terms of how I felt. I didn't think of those gates that are, that are shut with, and, and won't let you in. <clears throat> to me, it was the ones that were open and and being able to kind of be invited in, there's something kind of intriguing on the other side. You're not quite sure what it is, but it looks kind of homey. So I also like that the, the publisher picked that, but I, I like the cover they picked. We have a related question submitted by Andrew Singer. He mm -hmm. said, back in the 1980s, China still had open and closed cities. Did you ever have challenges in reporting because of this situation? And did it have any impact when you visited your husband's parents' hometowns? You know, I don't recall open and closed cities. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe Margo, you did, because maybe, <laughs> I think it was a little before I got there, frankly. Um, the difference between 82 and 79 doesn't seem like that big of a difference. But by the time I got there, there really, there weren't closed cities. Nobody stopped us from driving to that, that remote little village. When, I, when we got there, I said, have, have you ever seen a foreigner before? And one of them said, oh, no. And the other one said, no, we have, we have. The Japanese soldiers were here. So <laughs> I realized that I was the first Westerner that had ever been to that village. And, and no, it wasn't closed. Nobody stopped us. And the other thing that uh, is an experience that I found very interesting um, is that my husband and I got to go to Tibet in 1987 and we didn't realize uh, until many years later how rare that was because there were no restrictions on uh, on us going there. We just bought a ticket and we went and we didn't have uh, a, a handler or a minder. Nobody from the, Ch the Chinese government if they knew that we were there, they, we didn't know that they were watching us. I don't know if they knew or not. Um, the Holiday Inn had just gotten the rights to manage a hotel in Lhasa. So I had a business story. And um, 
they invited us. So we just went and we didn't need a special invitation. And it was, it was a very interesting time. It was before there were no, no signs of soldiers or police presence. Um, it, uh, it was very poor. The exiles were just being allowed to return from India for a visit, for family visits for the first time. So we did run into some Tibetan exiles who had come back to, to visit and they were being really careful what they said in front of whom. But um, we were able to wander around, get in a car, go out of the city, go visit a, an old monastery that we'd heard about and wanted to see and stop by the side of the road and go into someone's home. So I really feel fortunate I had at least especially in that experience, um, much more open experience than most people have had since then in Tibet or, or could have today, I imagine. Yeah, certainly different from today. But it's interesting that you aren't aware of the closed cities. We had to get Lushingzheng travel permits to go any place outside of the city where we were registered. And I think that ended perhaps in 81 or 82. So it was before your time. It's interesting. There really are very distinct periods of history that are pretty small. Um, yeah. You know, 76, 77 was different. And, and, and uh, 70, 79, 81 was different. And uh, so it was more open by comparison. We have a question from somebody I think will be a familiar name to you, Scott Seligman. Yes. Is the bloom off the rose as far as American firms setting up production facilities in China? Will Southeast Asia be the big beneficiary as companies decide it's just too difficult to stay in China? Um, I think the bloom is off the rose um, and a lot of the, the, the horses fled the barn or however you want to say it. Um, the, uh, and part of the, pro well, part, I think that was happening uh, before last before the trade war um, because Chinese labor was getting more expensive. So for an iPhone, it made sense because that's a really highly skilled kind of labor, but the, the clothing and shoes and the, the, uh, the cheap labor pro production had already started to move out of China anyway, because Chinese labor was too expensive. But now in part uh, because of the US government policy, it, they, it's, it's forcing American companies to, so, to find uh, a variety of sources, but definitely to hedge their bets because uh, as we know, as we've seen in the last uh, few years and few months and few days, really uh, US policy towards China can, can change in a, in a flash and um, usually not in a positive direction. So that the supply chains are already adjusting to that. I think that China is not so concerned about that because the really low level production uh, was already starting to move out and they do still have European and other markets and they're realizing how dependent they were on the US as well. And I think they're trying to be more self-reliant now and, and not be so exposed to America. So they also, uh, because of U.S. government policy are, are finding ways to, uh, to hedge their bets. I'd like to bring us back to Hong Kong for a moment. I was very struck when reading the book about 
Hong Kong when you were there and Hong Kong now, and you alluded to it in your presentation, you describe Hong Kong under the British, which is, was the case while you were there, as stable, clear rules, well-enforced laws, open opportunities for entrepreneurs to thrive. And when the negotiations about the 1997 handover began in Beijing in 82, at about the time you arrived there, there was great anxiety with real estate and stock prices falling. Things got better, confidence returned after the joint declaration and the basic law until, as you say, the events of June 4th. Fast forward to today, and there is again considerable concern about Beijing's intentions vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. Could you comment on any of the parallels or differences that you see? Um, I do see a lot of parallels. Um, I, I, I saw uh, not only the, the concern in, in early 92, but after Tiananmen Square, I came back and I was living in Hong Kong and we, my husband and I participated in some of the, the I mean, there was a massive street demonstration um, after the, the crackdown um, and, and there were, there were mass rallies in Victoria Park and and uh, we taught our daughter to say Minju one sway when she was just two years old. Um, so we very much um, identified with their concerns and their worries. And in terms of uh, what's going on today, um, <clears throat> I think this is just my opinion. I wanna preface this by saying I'm not a scholar, um, I'm, and, and I'm not a Hong Kong resident either, and I'm, I'm just an informed observer. So uh, we all have our opinions. Uh, but I really think that the, the protests that broke out um, in the middle of last year, um, I think that Xi Jinping was uh, indirectly responsible because there have been so, met, so many uh, limitations on uh, on the changes in the legal system in China, crackdown on dissidents, the, um, some of the uh, stricter censorship of the internet. And um, the people of Hong Kong had reason to be worried um, that China was going in the wrong direction for some of those things. I mean, remember that for 20 some years after 1997, um, there was a peaceful transition and things were going pretty smoothly up until a few years ago. And um, it, I really think that it was changes at the, in the top leadership in China that caused a lot of people in Hong Kong to have less confidence in the future of China. And um, it may have been specifically about the extradition law, but it was really a, a less confidence in the, in the government in Beijing. Um, but then, and so I, in the beginning, very much um, identified with the protesters and remembered being on the streets with, with protesters um, when they were peaceful. And then when they became um, violent and disruptive, um, a lot of my friends in Hong Kong were very upset um, that they kept going on and there was a lot of destruction of uh, subway stops and disruption at, at airports. And um, I think the fact that they got violent and went on so long is really what um, 
would push China to to pass that national security law itself, and the fact that the the Hong Kong government was rather ineffective in in controlling the protests and or even responding to the protesters, and certainly couldn't pass the law itself. And it's a, a very unfortunate series of events, and uh, makes me very sad. And the only um, hope that I can bring to that um, is really kind of like a hope I put at the end of my presentation, which is that that things have uh, the pendulum has swung several times in Hong Kong in my lifetime, even, and also the the Chinese government has invested quite a bit in that amazing. Uh, Sea bridge between Hong Kong and Macau and the Greater Bay Area that they're all very excited about. And um, there's this new ant group uh, IPO that's coming up and the Hong Kong stock market is all a Twitter about that. Um, so Hong Kong traditionally has been mostly about business. And I think the, the business side of Hong Kong will probably uh, pick up again. And the people whose hopes were dashed, um, either, uh, well, many of them will, will probably be leaving, I imagine, uh, because they don't feel safe. Many of them have left already. And um, I think as far as the US policy, rather than um, sanctions, I mean, I think what the UK is doing, which is offering a path to citizenship to some of those people who are most worried and most concerned is is a is a more humane way of dealing with with it that's just my take everybody has their own i'm sure we've got 110 different opinions on hong kong but that's mine thank you very much that was a wonderful presentation and conversation unfortunately we're at the end of our time my apologies to those who submitted questions we didn't get to we got to most of them though Oh, good. I'm glad that you got a chance to ask your questions, though, at least. That's great. Yeah. So, again, it's really a wonderful book. I encourage people to get your hands on it and read it. Dory, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. And audience members, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Margo. It's been great. I appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, for coming. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.